Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Did you know that the post-acute and long-term care setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates, which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions? Join AMDA's new initiative. It's called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC. Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us on another Journal Club from the Florida Medical Directors Association. Today we're going to talk about racial inequities and disparities. And if you're not speaking, I would ask you to mute yourself, please. So, you know, we're going to start the way we normally do with a quick state of the state. And then I'm going to invite our special guests um, to help me have a conversation around racial disparities and inequities in post-acute long-term care before we open it up to a discussion. So just to go ahead and get started, I wanted to just share with you where we're at as a country. And in looking, um, through the data, if you've been looking at the data or paying attention to um, ER utilization, hospital utilization, your um, own practices possibly, or even watching the news, you will know that we are currently seeing less cases. And um, as of May 25th, we had 25,925 new cases, which was very good news. If we um, look at what that means about positivity, the seven day moving average for the United States positivity rate was 4%, which is very um, um, remarkable. And if you're here in Florida, our numbers are for the seven day moving average is 5.21%, which when I looked at the data from our website, our Department of Health, as of Monday, we were coming in at a positivity rate of 3.75% with 1,889 new cases being reported. So that is a really good, really good news. I think it's, a, you know, it's, it's made for a lot of hopefulness around the country. And in part, it is due to the fact that we are seeing more people get vaccinated. So, um, in the past few weeks, we've seen that the Pfizer vaccine was approved for 12-year-olds. And um, you can see that for the 12-year-olds who are fully vaccinated uh, in, in that pool, that population, um, we're seeing a lot of, uh, of um, uptake. The news that broke this morning was that 50% of all adults were vaccinated. and. Um, if you've been researching and following along, you'll know that 73.9% of that population that is 65 years of older have been vaccinated as well. In Florida, we, um, as of um, May 25th, we saw we had over 8 million people fully vaccinated. So 
this has been really great news in the last few weeks. Um, we do, um, we are seeing a correlation and we know we have a, a ways to go with some people who are still hesitant. And um, then there are others who may be completely against the vaccine. And so we do have um, a ways to go to get to that, that um, elusive 70% goal. But today, you know, I wanna talk about something a little different and it is uh, around racial disparities and inequities in post-acute long-term care. As many of you are aware, uh, the anniversary of George Floyd's death was yesterday, May 25th. And there were some ceremonies and things held um, around Washington and in the Minnesota area and uh, in other cities and um, states across the country. And I thought it would be a good time to reflect on what we've seen this year and the conversations that we've had. And I wanted to have Dr. Um, Brett Sevison um, on because she's a, such a dynamic and remarkable person. And Brett, if you can introduce yourself, because I, I don't, I want to make sure we do it justice to um, everyone who's on, I, I would greatly appreciate it. Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. Um... Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for letting me join you today. I was very flattered and honored when Diane asked me um, if I could join today. I was very fortunate uh, to work with Diane um, and Dr. Fatima last fall for the AMDA Leadership Symposium, where we talked about this topic. Um, so I am an adult gerontology primary care nurse practitioner. I'm based in Marietta, Georgia. I work for a large healthcare company, but uh, we are contracted with local area nursing homes. So I'm actually contracted to be the primary care provider for a single nursing home. So I come to one facility five days a week. And of course I have a medical director and we have everybody in the entire building. Um, and so we're responsible for, for the single facility. My medical director also does about 50 other things though, um, but I only come here. Um, I have some ties to, to GAMDA. I've known some folks in GAMDA for a long time, like Perry from Georgia chapter, which probably all of you know. And um, I've been very active in the GAPNA organization. For those of you who don't know, that's the Gerontological Advanced Practice Nurses Association. It's the longest title in the world. Um, but through being involved with both of those organizations, I've had a lot of great opportunities to meet new people and network and learn a lot of great lessons from, from people in the, the gerontology and the geriatrics world and so I feel very lucky to be here and I'm very honored and I hope I hope we just have some really great conversations today. I'm always learning. I mean I just my disclaimer is that I I have many many lessons to learn myself and so this is not a what's the right answer type of session. It's all about kind of shared experiences and how can we keep conversations going so that we continue to learn more about ourselves and more about each other and hopefully bit by bit, maybe make the world a better place. So thank you so much, Diane. No problem, thank you. Thank you for um, joining us. So I'm going to start off things by just looking at what we've seen during the pandemic with racial disparities. And I wanted to really highlight what we've seen in the nursing facility. So we know and we've what we've seen is that in those facilities where there are more black or Hispanic residents, we had a higher um, share of COVID deaths. So, and this data was reported back um, 
started being captured very early. And it was one of those things that hit us in seeing more disparities around COVID. And when we looked at the nursing facilities, we saw that, that those same proportions. Um, we also saw that the outbreaks were worse in nursing facilities where there were more Black or Hispanic residents. And I think we are all aware of some of the challenges. And this is not, this data is not just specific to nursing facilities, but it's really the challenges that we still face with getting certain um, um, ethnic groups and certain um, um, groups to, to say that they will be willing to get a vaccination. So we're still tracking that and we're still very much aware. So when we're looking at inequities and inequalities and disparities in post-acute long-term care, where I was hoping, as Brett mentioned, um, well, we, we just want to have a discussion. We want to look at some cases and, you know, we invite anyone who wants to weigh in to do so, but we want to just talk about what we're seeing and where we're at as a, as a, um, as an industry and possibly, um, some of our own personal, um, experiences and journeys. So the first case, is the case of finally someone who speaks English. And Brett, you know, I know this is something, this case is very familiar to you. I don't know if you wanna uh, share it with the, the, the group <laughs> so that we could talk about it. Sure, sure, thank you. Um, this was a case that originally I had thought of after actually having some discussions with some of my colleagues here. I've been coming to this facility for over eight years now. So there are some folks here that I know really well. Um, I know a lot of our nurses very well, a lot of the CNA care partners, but also my social workers. And we have a lot of discussions about these things and we, we deal with a lot of this, especially my social service directors. And so when I was asking about, you know, what would be some good examples of um, cases to talk about where we could kind of help help learn. And one of the things we came up with were situations that we see quite often where the patient uh, says to me, well, let me start back from the beginning. Um, my patient population, if it gives you a background, my patient population here in Marietta, Georgia, it tends to be mostly Caucasian and it tends to be mostly people who have Medicare um, or Medicaid, but they have some type of insurance. Um, but we also are located in an area that is predominantly not Caucasian in terms of the, the groups of ethnic um, backgrounds of people who live here. And so a lot of times what happens in my facility is that I'll go in to meet a new patient and, and I don't know what they're expecting. Sometimes I get a comment like, um, your English is really great, but a lot of times I'll introduce myself. I say, hi, I'm Brett. I'm your nurse practitioner here. It's nice to meet you. Um, how was your weekend or how was your night? And many, many times I will get from the patient, finally, somebody who speaks English. Um, I get that comment a lot more than than I would like. And so that's where kind of the beginning of, of this case started. Um, and Diane, I don't know how far you want me to go with it in terms of like, do you want me to go ahead and talk about some of the kind of reactions and ways we've tried to deal with it? Or do you want me to kind of pause? So I wanted, yeah, let's talk about how it was. So you, if this was the, a new patient, mm -hmm. I believe, and we were trying to, 
get a sense of who was going to take care of them. Can you walk us through what happened and how do we even get to this this quote, this now famous quote of, mm -hmm. of that we probably heard in many facilities? <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, sure. So, so I guess to kind of paint the situation a little bit better or kind of the next steps forward they they say to me the first time finally someone who speaks english and and you know a lot of the staff of my nursing home the majority of the staff of my nursing home are are coming from different backgrounds some of them actually come from international backgrounds so we have people who have immigrated perhaps from countries in africa or we have people who have integrated from say panama um, or their family moved here and so we have a lot of people who who probably look very similar in terms of skin tone but they actually have a very diverse background and we have a lot of people working here who um to someone who grew up in Georgia and sounds like me, these people sound like they, or these people have an accent that you're not familiar with. Um, and I think a lot of times that's that's the main, the main source of these types of comments for my facility is that when they say to me, finally, somebody who speaks English, and you know, sometimes I laugh it off and I'll say, I'll say, well, you know, well, you know, everybody here speaks English. And I think when I, when we dig it out, sometimes I think it is because we have some staff here who have who have accents and they're speaking English just fine but especially nowadays when you have a mask or when we had the mask and the face shield um, a lot of our patients have a difficult time understanding sometimes these accents perhaps they haven't grown up around it or perhaps too there's there's a concentrator in the room and it's kind of noisy or they don't have their hearing aids in and so this comment comes up a lot i think because we just have a diverse group of people who work here and everybody doesn't necessarily sound the same um, so i always try to say well everybody here speaks english you know um, and sometimes it goes different directions <laughs> So tell me, what has been the reaction before taking care of that person? Like if you know mm -hmm. it, if these things, I, I don't think people often appreciate how it spreads amongst the staff mm -hmm. that um, that person is um, what we would call difficult or mm -hmm. may have certain biases. How do you then get the staff, the nurses and the CNAs to still, um, you know, go into the room what 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 has happened mm -hmm. like how do you have those conversations mm -hmm. um so a lot of times they actually come to my social worker and i'm just kind of i'm witness to this because i'm here all the time a lot of times they come to the social worker or you know maybe i'll hear it at the desk or i happen to be talking to them or something like that and they'll say well i don't want to go back in that room because patient so-and-so you know said this about me or xyz um but kind of in my my overhearing it with a social worker or being there with the social worker, you know, we we kind of have the initial conversation. We say, you know, you know, you know, this patient, you know, may not be used to it. It doesn't make it okay. You know, we we try to support the staff and say this is not okay. We know it's not okay. Um, and sometimes we might even go talk to the patient. Sometimes my social worker goes and says, hey, you know, we have a lot of different people who work here. You know, what, what you said is is not appropriate. 
And they say it in a very lovely way because my social workers are magical and they just know how to talk to people. <laughs> and we might say, you know, everybody here speaks English, you know, is it, is it that you're having a hard time hearing or is it something else? Or they might say, well, I just can't hear because you have a mask on or this or that. And, and we kind of talk to the staff in a way that says, you know, we, we may not be able to change the patient's behavior. We may not be able to change what they see about you. But we tell them, I mean, we try to validate their feelings for sure. We say, we know it's not okay. It's not okay. And there's this kind of, there's these lines of when do you ask the management to say, you know, from a, a, a management company perspective of, look, so-and-so, you know, you cannot behave this way with staff versus the more subtle things that they say all the time. Really, the finally someone who speaks English, it happens so much. The staff, a lot of them, what they tell me is that, you know, Brett, it happens so much, I'm just used to it. And they just kind of brush it over and they keep, they keep taking care of the patient. I mean, and they're really amazing because they work so hard. And, you know, I have CNA care partners who, who they may not understand the background of the patient and the patient may not understand the background of them, but they continue to work hard because they want to take care of people. They say, you know, I'm here because I, I want to take care of people. I want to make sure this person gets what they need. And so we try to support them and step in if we need to. Um, but I think deep down too, we know that, that probably that person is not going to completely change the way they behave or feel in their short time with us. And so I don't have like a great one, two, three step answer of like how to, how to fix it. But those are some of the things that I've seen our staff go through. Yeah, and I, and I don't think there is a, a, a one, two, three fix it. Um, Dr. Hawk, you have your hand up. Go ahead, yeah, unmute yourself, please. We can hey, hear you now. Very interesting talk, and I think, Brett, what you just said, if we may call you Brett. Sure. The, the staff works there because one, they make a living there, but two, and I think for many of us, because they do good work for the right reason to other human beings. All of us in my career, uh, which is long, we've had difficult behavior patients, patients that call out, resist care, you know, they're sick, they don't feel well, they're chronically ill in long-term care, uh, they don't have much filter when they talk to any of us. Uh, I've been called names, I've been hit, I, I've been slugged, uh, but I'm trying to understand where the discrimination is, where it's what happens in long-term care with people, no matter, I think, I guess this is in the intellect of the beholder, I think it's because they're irritable or sick or have cognitive deficits or no social filter, but they've said the very same thing to me and I don't, I look like them or I don't look like them. Uh, so where is the discrimination in bad behavior? Now I so, get it, if they start using racial epithets and start screaming stuff like that, I get it. And of course we would say, look, this is your caregiver. You either get this person to take care of you, and I've done this twice in my career, or you get no one to take care of you. And one mm -hmm. fellow decided on no one, and for a whole day he got no care. And he decided mm -hmm. that his caregiver, whatever they looked like, was pretty good. Well, and, and Dr. Hawk and, um Brett, you can let me know if you um, agree. I think it, there, there is a component of um, perception and perspective that we have to 
consider because everyone goes into every interaction with their own biases, their own way of um, hearing things and listening to things. And in thinking of a situation where um, it, it may not sound offensive for someone to say, oh yeah, you, you finally, finally, I guess someone in here who speaks English, but that could be the one offensive thing that that person who's receiving that is hearing. That could be they're hearing something that's offensive because it requires you to have made a um, judgment on maybe the way they're speaking, the way that they appear. Um, you know, sometimes and often uh, in South Florida, it may require you to think that um, everyone who is of a certain um, race, um, you know, they only speak this language or everyone who is Latino has a heavy accent and you're not going to be able to understand them. And I've seen it go in a lot of different ways where um, there is times where people are just, um, you, you don't, you don't know how to take it. You're like, okay, are you just happy because you, you have, we're having trouble understanding someone or is this something being said that's a offensive and it really comes down to how that person is perceiving it and i think that what we have to do in this moment is really be sensitive to the fact that some of the things that we're that we've probably normally considered can be construed as being offensive to another person and i don't know brett what what you um would sure. think oh sure absolutely i mean there's so many different ways to talk about it you know i mean to be honest i didn't used to really think about it until, you know, I started working more in the environment and I heard it because I didn't hear it before. And then when I heard it so much and I had to think about it, you know, now it's, it's something that, that of course I do think about more and more often. And I think when I try to put myself in the shoes of someone who works here, um, and I think if someone's saying things like that to me every single day, you know, what kind of what's the what does that mean for me brett when i when i know that maybe maybe my cna jane over here hears this every single day maybe from more than one person you know it's just for me it's it's something to just learn from and say okay you know maybe this is something that like i need to think about maybe i've said something like this to somebody or maybe i need to speak up more when i hear that because i did not used to i used to just laugh that off i did not used to say anything to the patients i would say you know we just have a job to do just do your job put your head down and do the work but when i started hearing it more and when i see how it affects how it affects the people that I work with and the people that honestly, once I have more of a relationship with them, their pain is more real to me or their discomfort is more real to me. And I think, okay, wow, like maybe I don't have that same discomfort, but I see that they're going through something very difficult, you know, and I care about them now. Is there something else I could be doing to, to somehow, you know, if not change the way things are, somehow let that person know who I care about like that I support them. And so now I will say something like, well, you know, you know, Mr. Anderson, everybody does speak English here, you know, or something lots along those lines when I used to not say anything before. And, and that's only a very small change change. And I'm like, you know, I don't think that I've made the world turn another direction by making that small change, but I will say that I did not used to think about those things before, 
the way I think about them now. Um, and I try to think too, you know, it just what are my own biases and prejudices because I've I I know I have them and I and I may not share them here on this call because you all don't know me and I don't want you to know the evil things that have gone through my head probably in the past. But it, it has helped me start to recognize those things too. Like if my initial reaction is one thing, sometimes I have to think like, why am I reacting that way? Is it just because like, what's the reason for my reaction? And maybe it's, maybe it's a righteous reason, or maybe I'm, you know, am I mad for some other reason? Or am I not reacting? And maybe I should be reacting. Like I might hear, you know, we have had patients call our staff the N word many, many times. And, and it's kind of like, if I'm not reacting to that, I probably should be, you know, mm -hmm. like that's kind of the level of you just do not, you do not do that. And I feel like that's like a very, very unacceptable behavior, you know, from anyone. I mean, we will get, I know we'll get to the question about people with living with dementia, Diane, which is going to be a whole nother thing. Um, but yeah, that's kind I just of, want to interject, yeah. um, um, not to cut you off, Brett, I, I would just interject. Think about those situations where you have maybe that nurse who you clearly understand and and that is the person who is the go-to on the, that unit or in that building and if they are receiving um someone who they feel is discriminating against them because of their their accent or their skin color and i i, I would just share i had a a nurse um she was of jamaican descent from england she spoke the Queen's English and someone couldn't understand her, um, her accent. And I think you, you, you really have to think about the way that information is coming um, back to um, people because it, it, there is some layering to that, maybe not in every situation, but I think as we're moving through our facilities and working with our teams, we have to listen and really think about What's the cumulative effect of hearing these kind of things every day? And and Dr. Hawk, I know, I know you have your hand up again. Um, and we we could definitely take your comment before moving to the next case. Well, none of us want to hear insults uh, of any kind, uh, but I think we are a bit more forgiving in our space of long-term care because these people are in a facility. They often are quite ill. They have cognitive deficits and physical debilities that make them irritable, but we don't want to hear any insults. And actually, in some facilities and even hospitals, some of the staff do not speak English, but they're still wonderful caregivers and we use uh, interpreters uh, when needed to do that. Where is the disparity of care when we hear insults or when someone really doesn't speak English, which I think is okay. I think the disparity comes in how does that, that staff member or even that patient, depending on the flow of those comments, how do they then respond when there is an issue? Are they going to trust that you're, trust you to give you, to share that information? And, you know, I, I think um, I'll, I could use myself as an example for, unfortunately, way too many things. Um, but there are times when you're sitting with, you're the patient and you're sitting with your physician and you don't feel heard. Um, you know, and I go through like the, the ABCs, like, okay, is this because I'm a, 
a woman? Is this because I'm a black woman? Is this because of all of the above when you're when you're in that situation? And when you are not able to, in my opinion, where you're not able to establish a, a trusting relationship, it does impact care. You know, what, what does it get said when I don't know how that person is, um, if they're going to take my information? What does it get asked if you're the clinician and somebody just sort of hits you with that, you know, does that throw you off of your, the, the questions that you're going to then ask? Are you um, like trying to circle back to, okay, there was something I needed to address with you, but now I can't get the fact that you're trying to this accent and you're saying that I don't speak um, English well. You know, I, I don't know how, I don't know what's on the other end of that, but I, I, do, I do worry about that. And Dr. Pandia put a, a good comment into the chat that modeling good interpersonal interactions and respect to the staff in front of patients helps. I, I do definitely agree, Dr. Pandia. I don't know if you wanna talk more to that, but there are that that's that emotional intelligence piece that I always go back to. You have to learn how to communicate with each other and being a good role model is helpful. Dr. Pandia, I don't know if you wanna share. Uh, that's just a minute, Dr. Sanders. Thanks. That's a really great discussion. Um, but I just find instinctively that if you don't cut it right away and counteract bad behavior with positive behavior, if you're there and you're seeing that, um, then you've lost an opportunity. And then I think a lot of our work in long-term care, whether it's modeling good communication, patient assessment, it's all done by role modeling and training you know moments of micro teaching to try and move the needle in our in our setting and yeah. so i i just feel if you're there um you might even want to say as dr svensson said something directly to the patient and then but actually showing that you respect and trust the caregiver that there have been disparaging and just to answer the case of uh, i don't want to see that clinician since you have it uh, when I was a, a new uh, attending after my fellowship uh, in uh, Detroit, I, we had a consult service asked to see a very, actually very uh, aristocratic lady who saw myself and our fellow was Sudanese, a geriatrics fellow, and I was the attending. So we roll up, you know, to the bedside, all eager and smiling. And uh, But the daughter said she didn't want to see us um, because she you know, had a very high, you know, lineage and roots and she uh, would feel offended. So we just politely left and talked to the chief of the department at that time. And um, he immediately, uh, and I'll always respect him for that. He called the family or the daughter who was at the bedside and he said, he, you know, we were part of the department. Everybody was well-trained and he had equal confidence and we were the team on call. So. It was either we saw the patient or nobody saw the patient. And, uh, and a few minutes later, we were up there doing the consult. So thank you. I think, Dr. Thank Pandy, you for I sharing think that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think always that, respect him for that. He kind of stood them down. You know. I think that's an example that we hope we've all seen in our careers where they are part of the team and they are part of the team that will take care of you. And yeah. Dr. Sanders, I think your answer to my question about what's behind the comments that they make or how they say it uh, is very appropriate. That was a great answer to my comment. 
Thank you. Thank you. It is great to have your heroes on. So Dr. Padilla and Dr. Hawk, this is amazing. So um, I wanted to share a, a case that Dr. Fatima Nadvik um, shared with us about not having a patient state, state I don't want to see that clinician. And I thank you, Dr. Padilla, for the case that you, for, for that real example that you just gave us. In this case, um, this patient saw that the clinician came in with the hijab, um, the headdress, and they just made a decision that they didn't want to see that person. And the question that we can, I, I wanted to, to, to discuss is what happens when that discrimination is towards the clinician in a very apparent way. And Brett, you know, I, I'll start with you, like in, in thinking about that. And if there's ever been a situation where that has happened to you, please, if you're willing, go ahead and share it. Um, sure, let me think for a second. Um, on a personal level, I mean, I can't think off the top of my head where I, I don't think somebody did not want to see me because of looking Asian. I mean, I've had them assume that I was going to have a strong accent or assume something else, you know. Um, I do get sometimes that they don't want to see me because I'm not the doctor. Um, I get it on that level, you know, a lot. And and I really, I personally don't take offense on that level because, because I know a lot of my patients are used to seeing their primary care doctor or their cardiologist or whoever, and they see them for their whole life. And then they come here and they say, well, you're not the doctor. I mean, I don't want to see you. Um, you know, un unfortunately for them here, I'm the only one here today. So I said, well, you can talk to me or you can wait for the doctor. She might be in on Saturday. <laughs> And usually they talk to me um, on the I don't want to see the clinician case. I know that I did. I have a very close friend who who actually my my medical director, she has a family medicine outpatient clinic. She takes a lot of medical residents um, and a lot of medical students. And I know this happened to one of her medical students. She came in with her hair covered and the patient, the patient was I forget. I forget his ethnic background or what race he identified with. But the patient, yeah, said, well, I just made a snap decision. I don't want to see this person because, because of what, what they assumed. Um, I think in that situation, you know, of course, the student was respectful and, and she left and she told the doctor or she told whoever was kind of attending with her, her that day. And, and I think they, you know, they went in with someone else. Um, I wish I could remember, though, if they if they talked to that patient or not. Unfortunately, I, I should have asked her before I logged on today. What, how did that actually turn out? Um, that was a situation where, sure, there was someone else who, who could see the patient, um, but it's, it's, I don't know, that's, it's, it's hard. It's hard because, you know, it, she it was very hard. Yeah, it's very hard. And I wish I, um, in the situations that I had, I wish um, someone was as brave as uh, to do what they did for um, the for Dr. Pandia when, when you were in that situation, Dr. Pandia, but I know I've, I've seen us become very accommodating to the patient and we once found a different person to go in there and do the examination. But then there are times and especially, um, you know, in the post-acute long-term care space, there are times when you are the, the person and I've had people who said they didn't, they didn't want to see me First, um, you know, some people didn't know that I was the doctor, so that's one thing. And they, 
you know, it was, I guess, very surprising that I was the doctor in certain situations, but others felt that, um, you know, well, they couldn't relate to me and they would prefer um, someone else or somebody else. And, and I've had facilities be very accommodating to the, the patient and you get that um, patient transfer to another person's service. And I think that we, it's something that we really should discuss and, and think about, you know, how do you, how should we be addressing those situations? I, I prefer when you explain to the, the patient where I'm, I am um, the clinician, I am here to see um, you, I, I need to do my examination. And if you want to then find another clinician, that's fine. You know, something like that, where you really respond directly. Those are the things I've done in the past. Um, but, you know, they're, they're just, it, it really comes down to the facility at times, who, how accommodated they're going to be towards that patient in, in that moment. May I ask again? Mm -hmm. So if you look at our attendees here, I'm the guy who looks like the majority guy, old white guy losing hair. But I will tell you, your experiences I share with you. Uh, I've had families and residents say, you're not my doctor, so I don't want to see you. Or, so all of us have had, so those are our experiences. I absolutely understand that you may have experienced that more or more deeply or more intensely. But do you think that we have from the high level medical staff, the DNPs, physicians, nurse practitioners, DONs, do you think we have a built-in bias against our residents about how they look or sound or behave that changes the kind of care they get? Ultimately, I can process however they insult me or slander me or talk to me. I can either leave or I can accept it. I can do my work. I can be angry. I can forget it. But what kind of care do they get based on us? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And um, um, I think that there are a lot of biases um, that we as clinicians have built in. Uh, and and like I said, you bring everything in. So you brought everything that you may have learned from your previous experiences. And, um, and I think that we need to really think about the way we're communicating with people. And some of the pushback that we may receive from them may not be because they're being obstinate or um, they are just disagreeing with our treatment plan. Maybe it's down to the point where they don't really understand what that what that means and, and they have that barrier and our own biases are getting in the way of us um, communicating further with them. I didn't mention that this was a African-American um, family and uh, the, the mother had it graduated from high school and the daughter, uh, she had high school, but that um, she had graduated from high school, but that was the extent of her education. And they just didn't understand the pamphlets and the handouts that they were receiving. And most of the conversations that they had around advanced care, advanced care um, planning was a handout when you when it really came down to it and, and try to break it down to them. And now a word from our sponsor, 
U.S. post-acute care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. post-acute care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. I was thinking of all these situations currently where actually I was like, oh my gosh, I've, I am so guilty of assuming um, because to be totally honest, I mean, even just recently, either getting someone back from the hospital or getting a new patient and I'm looking at the paperwork I have and when I see that maybe the palliative team has talked to them and, and you know, they, it's, it's someone older, it's, it's, a, it's your classic older patient living with dementia who for us in the nursing home, you know, we get so used to this patient population. Whenever somebody who's, let's say, let's say 95, living with dementia, failure to thrive, just got a new peg tube, we all kind of internally roll our eyes and we're like, oh no, here comes another one. Like, oh, and a full code. And we just, and I think that to be very honest with everyone on this, this video call right now, I make a lot of assumptions about, oh gosh, this family is going to be so hard to talk to, or oh gosh, I don't even want to try. And I realize that's really not fair, you know, and, and I don't know anything about this family and I don't know a lot about this patient, but, but my 93 year old grandmother, like, like wants to be a full code and I have to be okay with that, you know? And so I just, I find that personally, I'm just, I don't, I'm not okay if they're not a DNR, but I have to be okay with understanding who this patient is and what they mean to their family and what's going on in their family and maybe even do they what's their background because it's probably different from me and not assume that well they're just not a DNR because because they just because they just don't know anything oh they're not a DNR because they're in denial you know and maybe there is denial but but that's the classic reaction that I have have had a lot to be very very honest is oh gosh here comes another one they must be in denial um, oh it's going to be so hard to work with these people and you know maybe it is or maybe it isn't but that's that's what I just thought about in my head and I had a little fast heartbeat because I said oh my gosh that's me <laughs> well I think it, it is probably a lot of us I think that we and I thank you for sharing that and being so open I think that it is hard to you know when you say okay do you want to be a full code and someone's like oh yeah you know i don't want to be denied a treatment because i've been denied so many things in my lifetime why would you deny me a treatment that you're going to give to everyone else and you really have to you know in you have to approach that conversation so differently um thinking about the person's perspective their background their ethnicity, their race, their the experiences they may have had. It is it's not always easy. And for me, it's not always the one conversation. 
It may be um, multiple conversations over days or um, even that same day where I am learning what, what that person values. Depending on how much time you have, you know, different when I used to round in hospitals, but you would sit down and, and figure out what they loved and what they valued. And I would, I would not ask the do not resuscitate. I would ask, okay, if your mother's heart stopped, would you want us to do chest compressions? Would you want us to do that? You know, those kind of things. And honestly, um, I know I, I'm always guilty of oversharing, but um, I even have those conversations within my own family where I have to walk them through what the process is when it comes to what that means about do not resuscitate. Yes, Dr. Hawk. So I think, Brett, we all make exactly the same assessment and assumption that you do. You know, here comes a full code peg tube, tray, chronic aspirator, all of that. And I think you make such a good point. And Diane, when we see people come in that are of African-American or Island African or Hispanic background, we're quick to make those assumptions. And that's when I think racial disparity does matter. But most of us, and I'll guarantee you, Brett and Dr. Sanders, that you're quick on your feet, that assumption you're very quick to dismiss as soon as you start to engage that resident, that patient and family, because you want the path of care to be the path of care they would want based on their culture, the belief system. And for me, in palliative care, if I make an assumption about somebody from Cuba, I stop that assumption and I ask them, how do you feel about this? How do you feel? What's your belief system? What's important to you? So that we, I hope, attempt to remove our embedded stereotypes so we can give them the kind of care that they're asking for that they want as an informed patient. Sorry to go on about that, but I, I think we live yeah. in the very same world you do, and we do our very best to think about diminishing disparities based on background. Yeah, and I, and I, I think that I would say it took a long time to kill the thought of this, is a, this patient is a train wreck from my head, like to, to <laughs> remove that, that language because it was reinforced going through residency and then actually after fellowship, um, you know, that was like the bright spot where you're learning more about how to have these conversations. But then once you're out in practice, it gets reinforced again. It's like, okay, this is a train wreck. This is a train wreck. And, and I had to unlearn that so that I could have those um, conversations. And, you know, I know we're running short of time, but I really want to talk about how do we deal with our patients who have dementia, who may use racial slurs. And, uh, um, you know, we've had, and there are so many cases where it comes, the one that I, I think of is um, one in which you overhear the patient um, using um, certain languages, like you said, um, Brett, earlier, the N-word towards their CNA, CNA who's trying to provide them care. What should be the pro this patient um, and the staff who cares for him or her? And Brett, um, you know, I'll let you get the first response. Sure. Um, I know I've talked about this with my social worker a lot, actually, because we do see it happen 
And, you know, one of the things she has taught me is that, you know, you look at this person, you know, you look at them, you know, not just dementia patient or not just person who called me a terrible name, but she said, you know, when you look at these people, your patients there with their cognitive impairment, um, whatever it may be from, she said, you know, they may be people who until that happened to their brain, they would have never said something like this. She said they could have been people who would have been mortified or not been like this at all um, until the dementia progressed or the Parkinson's disease progressed or something. And then that filter, I think Dr. Hawk mentioned this earlier, the filter is, is not, not there. You know, I mean, they have a disease that is affecting their brain that they cannot stop or help. And, and maybe they would have never done this in the first place, but now they're in a place where, you know, maybe that it's probably could have been something they grew up with, but they never said that because they knew it was wrong. Um, or maybe, you know, or maybe that wasn't the whole time. I don't know. You know, the, that one piece of advice has been helpful to think like, you know, you know, just for me, it's like, okay, just my initial reaction is usually shock and I'm angry, but it's also, okay, you know, maybe, maybe this really isn't them. This isn't who they are. And I can, I can kind of hold my assumptions so that I can take care of this person. And sometimes it's happened and we've, we've talked to people's families about it and the families are completely mortified. They say, oh my gosh, um, we had a gentleman years ago. I'll tell this story quickly. We had a gentleman years ago who had been a pastor his whole life. And then his dementia progressed quite rapidly and he came to live with us. And he said things that you just never thought a pastor would say. <laughs> and his family, his wife was just absolutely mortified and just embarrassed the whole time because she said, this is not my husband. He doesn't say these things. He doesn't act like this. This is not what he believes. And so that was helpful to hear too, because it helped me think, no, this isn't your husband. This isn't who you've been married to for 45 years, but this thing is happening to his brain. And, you know, I could get over, I don't, know that he really means it. I know some of the staff were like, oh, Brett, he means it, you know, and it's, again, I didn't, I don't know the right answer, but, but knowing that that person had said like this, just, there's just no way, oh my gosh, I've never heard mom talk like that, or I am just so embarrassed for my mom, but you can't really stop mm -hmm. this particular type of patient, um, but that advice has helped me a little bit, if it's helpful at all for anyone else. No, I think that's that's some very great advice. I know Pam, you have your hand up. I do. Thank you, Dr. Sandra Shapata. I was um, a little shy about talking about this kind of stuff because I feel like so much of it has become a political platform and has gone in good directions and in not good directions. But I wanted to say something about this particular slide. My grandmother. I'm a Southern girl, brought up in the Deep South in Louisiana, and my grandmother and my mother made sure that I did not use, and I was taught from a child to be respectful of all of our community. And I mean, the Blacks, the Whites, and we were Black and White. And I was taught by these powerful women to be respectful. My grandmother goes into a nursing home at 90, six years old with moderate dementia and it goes to severe dementia and I hear her say the n-word. She would never ever have done that. She taught me not to in an era 
when that wasn't taught to the young people, and I admired her as I grew up so much for this. So this means so much for you to understand and realize it's not even what they were taught. It's just something that comes out from a bizarre place. And it's really not meaningful when they're this deep into the dementia. So thank you for that, Brent. Oh, thank you, Pam. Oh my goodness. You're gonna make us all cry, Pam. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that is important when when you hear this and there, there are certain things you may not be able to ever teach that person with dementia to not say. I think it really comes down to how we go back to supporting this, the staff member who may be hearing that. Because as I said before, these things are cumulative. And even if it may not um, bother you the first time you hear it or the second or the third, you know, you may not be having the very best day or that, or that 50th time that this happens. So we just need to be mindful that, um, you know, that even if it's not something that is being intentionally hurtful, that it can still have caused pain amongst our staff. But I, I think if we, if we approach it that way, in thinking about who is the recipient of those words, um, maybe that will help. And I know, I know you, you Pam, you, you brought up like the political climate and, and, I, and I, I shied away from talking about this um, for so long until this past um, year. I think where it felt like I couldn't escape it. And I know that some people feel that, um, you know, that this is really political. And maybe, maybe so, unless you're, you're living with it as an everyday concern. <laughs> I don't know, I, I can't really separate. Um, I can't really, I don't really see it as something that should be debated amongst politicians when it's like the everyday where you're trying to figure out what do you share and tell your family members and your kids and how to, how to behave so that, um, that nothing um, horrid happens to them. And Brett, I know we, you and I in closing, maybe you could share what you shared with me about, you know, the situation after the, the, those tragic killings in um, Georgia, you know, how, how that made you feel. Sure, sure. Um, um, for those of you not privy to Diana Mine's conversation yesterday, I was telling Diana about how when uh, last, a couple months ago, actually, I think it was a couple months ago, a little more than a month ago, um, the Atlanta spa shootings occurred. And if you're not familiar with the situation, um, a young man went on a killing spree shooting, I want to say three, three Atlanta spa locations, one up um, a little north of me and then drove to, to kind of in the Atlanta maybe Midtown area or Buckhead or something and the majority of the victims were of an Asian background. Um, there were a couple who, who were not but the majority were of an Asian background and it was it was shocking. I mean honestly when it first came out I didn't really think too much of it because as sad as it is on the news every day in Atlanta there's a lot of shooting stories and you kind of get just desensitized to it but then as it kind of took hype over the next 48 hours you, and i saw we saw the response of um just the media i didn't tell you all of this diane because i know we were talking quickly but but i saw the response of the media 
that that as soon as it came out they they showed the picture of this young man's face and they were talking about understanding this young man and what would drive him to do such a thing and um you know what is his background and they were interviewing people that that you know he used to know in church and things like that and and then we saw the response of the the police department spokesperson who i think just very poor choice of words he happened to say this man was having a very bad day and this is what happened and of course, a lot of people were upset. The other communities besides the Asian American community were kind of outraged. And, you know, I, as I started thinking about it more, I, I got very upset and I kind of got scared. And it really, it was a couple weeks of kind of reconciling, like how I felt about this person who, who did this. And it was kind of in an area really close to home. And I kind of had to think through it. And I had gone to the grocery store the next day and I thought, you know, what if somebody comes in here? What if somebody comes into a place, you know, where I'm going and wants to do that? Because I thought, well, gosh, this could happen anywhere, anytime. And I was scared for a little bit. And then I, and then I realized, you know, you, you can't, you can't be scared um, to go do your regular life. But it, it just affected me in a way where I, I sat back all of a sudden. I thought, oh my goodness. I said, there are people who feel like this every day of their life or have felt like this to an even higher degree every day of, of their entire life. Um, and, and I thought about John Lewis, our recently past congressman here in Georgia, because I had been reading his memoir last year, where he talked about kind of the things that he endured and how at the time I thought, I am so glad that racism doesn't show itself like this anymore. And then I thought, but does it still do that just in different, in different ways? And is there anything that that I can do and kind of, I know Dr. Hawk mentioned like stopping our assumptions in my everyday life, whether it's here in, in my job every day or in other areas of my life where is there something else I can, I can be doing to stop my own assumptions. But the way the spa shootings made, made me feel was just really eye-opening because I thought other people feel this way in a much worse way. And, and, and so I, in some ways, I mean, I'm not really thankful for the way I feel, but I guess in some ways I kind of am because it's helped me connect a little bit better to some of my other, um, you know, coworkers here at, at the job um, and also in other, in other areas of life. And so that was kind of just, just my thoughts that I was sharing with Diane yesterday. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I, I know we're at time guys and it feels like we could probably talk for like, hours more. Um, Dr. Pandia did highlight that in JAMDA in the May issue, there is a great article and um, there is a great article um, on systemic racism and long-term care um, by Dr. Sloan and, and company. And it, it is really a great read. You know, thank you everyone who either shared something directly into the chat or raised your hand and spoke. Uh, thank you, Brett, for being so open. And I, and I will say, yeah, when you live it, it is something that we are all living. And I, I think that we need to keep taking moments to reflect about where we're at and where we're going. Um, with that, Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.